Welcome to The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Thanks for finding our show, our little working group here, riding in a perfect line down the road, get in, enjoy the draft. Got a good show on tap today. We're going to talk about a number of topics, but first, we want to explain why this show is here. It's because of people in places like thefatcyclist.com and Eldon Nelson. Fatty is one of our contributors to The Pace Line. So good to be here. Awesome to have you. And of course, the uh, show would not exist without redkiteprayer.com and its founder, its editor-in-chief, the man at the front, Patrick Brady, joins us from Sonoma County. Howdy. And that's like, uh, that's the cycling heaven. Is it not up there? Or it's am, I, am, I, am I giving too much credit to, to your fine county? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I'm fully supportive. I mean, I did move here for that reason. Oh, if we're going to have an argument about cycling heaven, I want to be part of that. <laughs> <laughs> I picked where my I live, guys. <laughs> I, I think we, in a roundabout way, we're gonna, in our first segment, I first want to tell the folks what we've got on the show today, and that is, for, there's, um, in our take a poll segment, we're going to get into stop signs and what's kind of gone on in San Francisco and really what's kind of moving uh, through various municipalities and governments about how law enforcement should treat us at stop signs and the reaction that motorists are giving us as we either yield or don't yield or roll through stop lines, stop signs, that is. And San Francisco supervisors have taken a pretty unique step with its police department and how it plans to enforce um, cyclists at stop signs in the future. Uh, also, we have a very interesting study uh, about riding while high. Dude. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Turns out putting a bong in your bottle cage may not be such a dangerous thing after all. Some scientists, yes, researchers, spent money uh, looking into this, and we'll, I don't know, we'll do our best to dance around this topic. Righteous. Uh, <laughs> righteous on uh, the pace line. Uh, so a lot of good things uh, on our show today. Uh, but first, uh, you know, it's that time of year. Winter. We are tracking some showers overnight and even a few snow showers tomorrow as the temperatures cool down. Wednesday and Thursday, rain moves in Wednesday and that will diminish as showers on Thursday morning. Right now, temperature 35 degrees. We're above the freezing mark. We have some snow in our forecast picture tomorrow morning. Our average high today is 31, average low 16. Winter riding and, and how to approach your training at this time of year becomes what? This kind of this. this juggling thing right i mean you're looking at the weather it's raining or it's snowing or uh, what bike do i use or can i get my hours in uh, fatty we're going to start with you because you are probably the most uh, severely affected by what happens this time of year what's what's your approach to winter riding how, how do you get through these months i'm going to come off as pathetic and i i, I just want to say that up front um to be a guy whose nickname is Fatty, but to not have a fat bike in Alpine, Utah is, in fact, shameful. And I recognize that. But I don't have a fat bike, and I don't like going out in the cold. Once it drops below about 45 degrees, I don't like to be outside in the cold, in the wind, in the rain, in the snow. 
And so I'm not doing the fat bike series. I'm not doing any of that. What I am doing is going into my basement where I have a kicker and I have trainer road. And this is this. I I don't know if this is coming off as a confession or an apology or just a statement of boldness, but I love doing winter trainer stuff. I love Netflix. I love putting on a workout and having via Bluetooth my resistance adjusted for me and kicking out 90 minutes of time on the trainer. What, Patrick, we found the guy. I've heard about this guy. There's some guy <laughs> somewhere in this country who, who likes getting on their trainer and riding nowhere. And that would be that would be fatty. I do. I, I love, I mean, on weekends I put in three hours, four hours on the trainer. I love it. At three hours per session or three hours total for the weekend? Uh, uh, per session. You know, I, I've done five hours, six hours. I've done 100 miles on the trainer before a number of times. Head caves in. Wow. <laughs> have you guys tried the kicker, though, and, you know, set it up with with trainer road or something where you have um, where you have the resistance and all of that is taken care of for you? It is so much better than the old days where you just have, the, you know, the fluid resistance type trainer against your tire and you were just kind of grinding it out mm-hmm. yeah. um, i haven't done trainer road yet that, that's something i need to rectify i've got some experience with zwift mm-hmm. uh, i did a, a a relay race uh with zwift four different teams back in may uh michael was a part of that and uh my 45 minute segment was the deepest 45 minutes I've done in years. What that was able to inspire in me in terms of uh, my willingness to go hard through that, you know, virtual competition, um, I, I was I was really stunned by just how hard I went as a result of that. Uh, so I, I recognize that it's a, a whole new frontier in terms of making winter training palatable. Fatty, paint the picture for us. How do you have... How is this set up? How, what do you do to make these sessions as enjoyable as possible, as realistic as possible? What's kind of around you? H- how does it look? What's the temperature like down there? Do you, do you, do you add wind to the environment? What do you do? I sure do. I, I, okay, so this could wind up being 45 minutes long. I'll try to make it reasonably brief, but it's down in the basement. I have two kickers set up. Uh, one for me, one for my wife, and we always train together as we do this. We have a wireless headphone set up because these things make a lot of noise and you can't hear Netflix or whatever you've got on the TV otherwise. We are each running Trainer Road, which is talking via Bluetooth to our kickers. As Also, we have Bluetooth cadence sensors, also by Wahoo, and heart rate monitors, also by Wahoo, going to... You know, going to our iPhones and we select a workout from Trainer Road, uh, which is on a training plan that is geared toward making us as fit as possible for the Leadville 100. So, you know, we have a goal in mind with every single day of the workouts that we do. They range from one hour to three hours long and they kick our butts and we are having, uh, you know, and you know an hour and a half of time with our spouse while we're training watching the blacklist right now and i love it and as far as wind we open a window and we each have a fan pointing toward us it's about 55 degrees down there 
where we're writing because we are working so hard. Where, now, where does the motivation come from? For me, uh, you know, in Southern California, I look out at that garage. I have a trainer set up there, too. Nice tax vortex. It's a good piece of machinery. But I look out there and I go, ugh. That, I mean, an hour out there just seems like eternity. What is it just just the fact of life from being where you are or do you have to psych yourself up? You know, I don't have to psych myself up. If I, I don't work out every day, I become a different person. Um, you know, every, I don't know how many people talk about cycling being their therapy, but I think that most of us are being honest when we say that. And if you are the kind of person who is tragically wimpy about cold and snow like I am, then your options are super limited. Um, so I'm, you know, I've, I guess I've adjusted to it, and I'm genuinely um, drawn in by the workouts. You know, they are, uh, they make you work hard, and it is not just grinding away um, with the resistance being set for you. Uh, it it becomes interesting and challenging to even finish it. So I, I, you know, it, it's making me a stronger writer. I love it. Now there are moments, there, there, there are days during the winter season where you can get outside and ride. It gets, the temperature sure. gets. Yeah, I go, uh, one of the nice things about living in Utah County is it puts you three hours away from St. George, which has Southern Utah desert riding. And so for a, you know, a, for a weekend, we'll often go out there and we have some fantastic desert mountain biking and road riding that are available to us. Now, Patrick, you're in a somewhat of a new climate. You're a SoCal guy for years. Mm-hmm. And now you're in Northern California and El Nino is in full effect. Uh, how is this? <laughs> yeah. uh, is this disrupted your, your normal plans, your riding plans, your fitness? How are you approaching this? Well, you know, what I will say is the rain changes everything. Um, you know, you, uh, when you're, when you're dealing with rain, you've got to dress differently. Um, you know, I, I like to adjust where I ride when it's raining. Um, these roads are not roads that I particularly want to descend on in the rain. Mm-hmm. So I'm focusing on flatter rides, uh, you know, flatter roads. Um, and I'm not big on spray in my face, so I'm generally... Uh, riding either by myself or you know with one other person. So uh, rain in the forecast does not mean trainer to you necessarily. No, well, I mean, you know, part of this is professional obligation. I'm in the process of reviewing um, an all-conditioned tire right now, and uh, two different rain jackets. Uh, so I I have an obligation to be out there, um, but also you know it's one of those things that. I knew this was, you know, we've been talking about this El Nino for six or eight months or a year or something. We knew this was coming. Um, And so I figured I needed to just make my peace with riding in the rain. And I've done that. So a fender guy or not? Uh, (laughs) Funny you should mention that. Um, There are some fenders that were supposed to show up here that have not yet. So currently, no, not a fender guy. I am not, shall we say, fender averse. And what's so? What's your breaking point? What's what says? Okay, I'm not going out in that. What is that? Um, I haven't hit that point. Hmm. I've I've done upper 40s and rain. Um, that was uh, thermal bibs, 
uh, base layer, long sleeve jersey, rain jacket, and medium embro, uh, plus booties and long finger gloves. And it, I ended up cutting that ride a little bit short. Yeah. Um, my feet were just too cold, too wet, and my fingers were going numb. Um, but I've, it's funny, I just had Strava up. Um, and that's kind of funny because, like, uh, I look at it and uh, let's see. And then it rained. Uh, <laughs> most of Pine Flat in the rain. Uh, a beautiful day despite the rain. Uh, let's go with what is wet for 200, Alex. Uh, <laughs> you know, 52 and rain. 18 cold, wet turkeys. 19 if you include me. Um, you know, so, yeah, I, I've been noting the rain in my Strava rides, uh, <laughs> or, or my rides once I upload them to Strava. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's rained a whole lot here. But the thing for me that has made all the difference in the world uh, are these two new rain jackets that I'm, I'm in the process of reviewing. One from Showers Pass, uh, the Spring Classics jacket, and then uh, the Oxygen 2.0 from Gore. Um, you know, they keep me dry, and unlike so many traditional rain capes, you don't end up with a rainforest inside where, you know, you're just as wet as you would have been. The difference is that the water's warmer. And how about your respective communities, Fatty? The, the other cyclists in your community, do they get out in the elements, or are they hunkered down to? Oh, you know, around here, uh, we are crazy for fat bikes. And I be, by we, I mean everyone except me, apparently. Uh, <laughs> all of the trails um, that are, are mountain biked on during the summer are being mountain biked on right now by people on fat bikes. Um, mm. After any good snow, it seems like there's just an arrangement that, you know, there's going to be someone who goes and tromps it down with a... A set of snowshoes and after that it's open for riding again um i am kind of jealous and kind of uh you know tempted to join and i feel like i ought to that you know these are guys who you know to look at them they're no different than me and they're having a great time out there on their bikes but i am just i i i you know, I recognize that I'm sounding contemptible as as I say this. You know, a guy who loves cycling is too lazy to get all suited up and go out to the trail and do that ride. But the fact is, it is so easy to just go down into my basement and use the trainer. And I be, I'm too conditioned by how easy it is to ride in the summer, where I just start from my front door and begin the ride that I'm not willing to load a bike into the truck and get all bundled up and do go, you know, you know, basically have 15 minutes of prep time and then 15 minutes of takedown time to do an hour or 90 minutes worth of riding when I can have a total net time of 60 minutes, 90 minutes of, you know, from time to start to time to end. And there's no setup or takedown at all. And in NorCal, Patrick, do the, does the local cycling community keep it up or give up? Um, you know, I'm not sure I'm really a great person to answer that question. I don't see as many people out riding uh, when it's raining. I will see some others, but the population uh, seems to drop some. But it's one of those things that this is not an area where there are loads and loads of group rides. Uh, there's an awful lot of solo training. And so, 
you know, it's it's not like I'm showing up to a group ride and there are 10 people instead of 40. Uh, so it's it's really hard to get a bead on that. Uh, all I can say is I, I wave to uh, a lot fewer people when, it, when it's raining. <laughs> yeah, well, my favorite uh, website about this time of year is the National Weather Service's website. It's the one I consult more than Strava or more than my Garmin Connect or more than a Google search because... In SoCal, what you can really do here is kind of dance around the rain. You know, it comes in, it may leave a quarter inch, a half inch, and a real severe storm. But you can really time your rides around here, and it's pretty, you pretty, you have to really mess up to get, have your training plans disrupted by the weather. Uh, even with an El Nino pouring through uh, heavy range, you can still get out if you're Purely an outdoor person, an outdoor rider, which I'm not. I'm not adverse to getting on a trainer. But if you're purely an outdoor rider and I have buddies who are like that, um, you can manage. You can stay dry. You can get your rides in. You can log all your hours, get all your climbing in, what have you, um, and not get wet. That's the lucky thing about being here. Now, I've often said about Southern California, and Patrick, you know, as a resident here, I'd love to hear what you think, is it's the weather's almost too good here. And I know that sounds weird for somebody sitting in Boston right now or in Utah where there's a lot of snow on the ground, but the weather's almost too good here and you can ride almost, you can ride too much in Southern California. There's oh, not, the weather doesn't force you off the bike enough to go out and do something else, maybe cross train, go lift weights, go spend time with your wife for goodness sakes, do something <laughs> other than sit on that saddle for six hours because you can do that here you're, would you agree, Patrick, that the weather's almost too good here for our own good as cyclists? Well, <laughs> I, I will say that, you know, last year when, you know, Southern California got uh, no rain whatsoever and was warm, uh, I couldn't talk about the weather to my friends on the East Coast who were getting hammered by successive snowstorms. Uh, I just, I would make uh, a real point of it not to say anything because I was afraid someone would come out and axe murder me for bragging about how I was living in heaven. Um, but, you know, the thing about rain in Southern California was less an issue of getting wet. I mean, it would be warm enough, you know, so it's not like you were getting hypothermic, but the issue was always that there was so little rain that all it would do was activate the oil on the streets and it would turn all the streets into hockey rinks. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm wondering, have you gotten enough rain this year so far to really uh, clean the streets so that you can uh, ride in the rain? No, and I proved it last weekend. Oh. As I ended up on my left hip descending uh, a fairly steep grade in the Santa Monica Mountains. No, it's not, yeah, it's not been washed out well enough. I thought I was being careful. Clearly, I wasn't. I mean, I, I take full responsibility for that. And they, you're exactly right. The the crazy thing that happens in SoCal, it happens with the drivers. It happens with the cyclists. It rains even a little bit here, and you've got pandemonium on the streets. And you really have to watch your turning and your grip and, and so forth here. So it does, it's, it's just, yeah, there are more extreme weather conditions throughout the United States. But when we do get a little weather here, it does turn into this bizarre extreme event for, for people on two wheels. Yeah. And see, we've managed to get enough rain here that all the oil has been washed away. And so grip on the roads is, you know, as good as you can kind of hope for, you know, with wet asphalt. Um, 
So that's, that's been a, a really nice thing. I don't have any fears that way. So, Fatty, take us through a typical week for you, just briefly, about how, how does your training week go in the middle of winter when you're clearly not going to have a chance to get outside and ride? Well, you know, I just, um, you know, I finish work. My wife gets home from work about the same time. Um, head on down to the basement and uh, do either 60 to 90 minutes, just depending on what the workout is. That's actually one of the things I'm, and I know this is coming off as like, you know, this segment brought to you by Trainer Road, but I do like the program. And it, since there is a plan that I'm following, I don't even have any choice. It's like, I don't get to decide, okay, today I'm going to figure out my FTP. When it's time for me to do my FTP, it's, you know, it's that date and I have to do it. Uh, it's an easy day. I get an easy day. I have a day off. I take a day off. But, um, I'm basically on a five day a week uh, thing, generally putting in um, on the days that I do ride, it's either 60, 90 minutes or once a week, it's, you know, two to three hours. Any Gen- weightlifting? Weightlifting? No. no. Weightlifting. <laughs> Jogging? You're in, the wrong, you're in the wrong podcast right now, dude. Uh, uh, I can make a case for weightlifting. I, I know there's, there's a great case to be made for weightlifting and none of us are doing it. Yeah, but I can also make a case for the trainer. And I think uh, the three of us, all master cyclists and busy lives, and the trainer, I mean, for as crazy and monotonous as it can be, it is a very, very efficient way to get fit, to make use of your time. Every pedal stroke is, is counted on the trainer. Out on the road, you know, there's coasting and there's chatting and there's coffee talk time and you know not everything is an effort on the trainer pretty much you're working the whole time and it's a great way to make use of your time well if you're doing a structured workout Mm -hmm. like trainer road offers you know my gosh what that compresses into 60 minutes you know most of my rides uh i'm i'm just going easy i'm just trying to log miles i'm not really worried about you know how hard i'm going most days oh yeah this has you know yesterday i did uh, 60 minutes of uh, 95, 105 over-unders, you know, nine minutes for each segment with a couple minutes in between. I had nothing to do with it. My my actual bike that I've mounted to the kicker is a single speed. And so all I have to do is keep the cranks turning. You know, the kicker knows what my FTP is, and it puts it at 95%. If I wimp out and lower my cadence, then the resistance goes up. And so, yeah, it's like there's no cheating um, with the technology that is out there now. Training, you know, on a trainer can be entertaining with Zwift. It can be incredibly structured and efficient with Trainer Road. You know, all the tools are there, and the, you know the the depth of entertainment stuff. You know, Netflix or iTunes or whatever you like. Uh, Sufferfest, there is just a ton out there. We've kind of given, I think a lot of us have brought our old memories of these fluid resistance trainers or rollers to what being on the trainer is like. And technology in the last few years has completely revised that. And I look forward to my time on the trainer every day now. That That's... that's- perhaps the best testimonial I've ever heard. Uh, you know, <laughs> trainers sort of broke me. I did so much of that for so long. It kind of broke me, and, and I have not. Um, theoretically, I really embrace Zwift. I'm not 
actually functionally quite there yet. Yeah, I got to try Zwift. You know, so many people have talked about it. I honestly need to. I'm going to give that give that a try. You know, I know enough people who are using it that I think that it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I the think fact that you can be racing some dude in Germany. You know, it's just really pretty trippy. Yeah, and the thing is, most of these are super affordable. Once you, yeah. you know, of course, the hardware is kind of expensive, but you know, Trainer Road's a few a few bucks a month. It's less than like. I don't know, it's like 15 bucks or something. And Zwift, I think, is about the same amount. So it's not like you have to choose one or the other. You mm-hmm. get both and have a ball. Um, yeah, it's, I I mean, I, I don't think this is where we meant to be going with this uh, particular segment. But you know, I, I'm firmly of the opinion that it's time for everyone to give the trainer a new chance because what they are is so different than what they were. Okay, then we'll we'll end with this from both of you. Just give me your quickly. Uh, say, Fatty, Patrick, I'm in the market for a trainer, and I want some software, some way to keep me going. What, what would you suggest I get? Kicker plus Trainer Road. There you go. It sounds like a great way to go. Or Zwift, you know, either way. Get, and get Zwift is what I would say. Kicker plus Trainer Road plus Zwift. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, if you just buy a Kicker, you, you, you haven't really gotten the full benefit yet. Yeah, and I would say uh, get a good indoor fan. <laughs> you know, plant a tree in your garage so it kind of gives you the feeling. On the pace line, we like to do a segment called Take a Poll. It's a pretty, pretty straightforward deal. We're going to have an issue here we talk about, and each of us will try and take a poll, have a point, have a take. Um, that's why we call the show The Pace Line, for goodness sakes. And this week, uh, we go to San Francisco, where San Francisco supervisors have uh, passed what's being called just a bike uh, yield law. The law tells... SFPD, SFPD, that is, to deprioritize enforcement of cyclists who safely yield at stop signs. Uh, bikers still have to come to a full stop uh, if they see vehicles or pedestrians. But if neither is present, a cyclist may roll through the intersection without stopping. And supervisors, the lawmakers of this county, have told their police department that they should put riding tickets to cyclists at stop signs way down their priority list, no matter kind of what they see. What happened in, this, in San Francisco was uh, a particular police captain decided he'd go out one day and target cyclists at stop signs, and this caused a whole mess in the city with the activists and the bike advocates and the San Francisco supervisors. Uh, and in fact, um, when the ordinance was being considered, this uh, one police captain, uh, John Sanford, uh, wrote that the law is unsafe for a pedestrian, cyclist, and motorist. He said such behavior is too unpredictable, and based on his years of experience, he sees it as a recipe for collisions, that is, by allowing cyclists to treat stop signs as yield signs. Of course, Idaho has had um, what's been called, what has been called the Idaho stop sign law uh, since the 80s, and um, there's been some follow-up studies done on that that I'll get into in a little bit. But first of all, I want to get your guys' thought on 
you know, stop sign. This is kind of, is this our dirty little secret that we all uh, roll stop signs and we treat them like yield signs? Where do you think we all stand on this issue? What, what is, what's the perception we're creating about ourselves, Fatty, by the way we treat stop signs? Well, this is coming at a pretty interesting time for me. I just had a really great conversation for the Fatty Cast with Megan Hotman, who is also known as the cyclist lawyer. She used to be a pro cyclist, is now a lawyer advocating for cyclists. And we talked a little bit about the Idaho stop law. And the important thing as far as as far as what I took away was legal standing isn't as important as your cultural standing. That even if there is a legal defense for, um, you know, for rolling and you're not going to get a ticket, we are pissing off uh, folks in cars more and more all the time. So while I have rolled uh, and, near infinite number of stop signs, I have been thinking that's something I'm going to stop doing. I'm going to start coming to a full stop just because I want to, I guess, encourage, um, I guess, less anger, less rage towards cyclists in general, as opposed to how they feel about me at that particular moment. Patrick, what do you think? Uh, the stop sign has been this optional thing for most road cyclists for many years. Are we are we hurting ourselves? Is this, is this creating more of a problem than it's worth? Well, the funny thing is when you said our dirty little secret, I chuckled. Uh, dirty, yes. Secret, mm, not so much. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree that from a PR standpoint, uh, rolling stop signs in front of pedestrians or drivers. And I don't mean like cutting somebody off, just somebody witnessing us rolling stop signs is really, really awful PR. Um, it, you know, it does nothing to further our cause, you know, in terms of our standing in the community. We're seen as scoff laws as a result. And for that reason, yeah, I've, I've also uh, changed my behavior. If there's a witness present, I won't roll a stop sign anymore. Um, you know, if there's no one around, you know, sure, whatever. Um, you know, but, and I've also never been one to roll red lights. And certainly when I was living in LA, I saw plenty of that. If a guy thought he could squeeze through, you know, I'd see guys just shoot through red lights. Uh, and it always kind of amazed me. So when you hear San Francisco supervisors, though, passing something like this bike yield while telling SFPD, hey, look, chill out. Don't be writing all the cyclist tickets. Do you go, yeah, that's what we want? Or do you go, ah, I don't really care? Where, where, where do we stand on this then? I think that it's a good thing um, because yeah. it means fewer tickets. And it means that there is perhaps some momentum toward uh, understanding cyclists and the difference we have. So that's good for us. But what we need to do is kind of reciprocate and say, all right, we're going to, you know, if we do roll, perhaps we're not going to get slammed legally. But what if we don't roll? What if we do come to a stop? What if we become people that are, I guess, more uh, friendly toward the guys in cars? Then are we going to be less likely to have something like, a beer bottle thrown at us when 
uh, you know, the next time a truck goes by. Patrick, I think you remember an article I wrote for you, AP, that kind of took this same tone. It had to do with the bicycle helmet law, and there was Mm -hmm. a proposal in California to make them mandatory for everyone. And I wrote that, look, maybe this is a law we don't get too fussy about, that we try not to be opposed to. And we just conceded almost for the sake of our perception, for the sake of the way we look when we act this way, when we say, oh, we, we don't want helmet laws. We want to have the choice. Um, and I got skewered for that. I got, I got raked for writing such a thing. I I, I mean, there were, there were certainly some people opposed, no doubt. Uh, To me, I, I think, um, you know, you raised a really important point from the standpoint of perception. Um, when people see someone out there wearing a helmet as they ride, it does send a certain sort of message that you have some regard for your own well-being, that it telegraphs that, yes, I am a responsible rider to some degree. Um, if you see an adult on a road bike with no helmet, um, a lot of people take that as sort of a devil-may-care attitude. Um, and so part of my opposition to a helmet law is, you know, don't, don't try to uh, – force the responsibility uh, the responsible behavior on us. Let us demonstrate that we can be responsible. Um, the, you know, back to the, the, the stop sign, uh, thing. I, you know, I was kind of of two minds when this was passed in San Francisco. Uh, I was sort of shocked that the police actually needed a law to tell them to enforce the law differently. Really? It's going to take that? The, the action that cyclists took that led into that, the stop-in, um, was hilarious. And had conditions in my own life been a little bit different, I would have gone down to San Francisco to take part in it. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, every single sty- cyclist came up to this one intersection and stopped exactly as they were supposed to. And it tied up traffic for hours. Um, and so that was a great education to both the police and drivers that, you know, really you want us through the intersection as quickly as possible, but we have a responsibility to be considerate of other users. If we're, if we're just zooming through stop signs and stoplights, um, you know, uh, whenever we think we can get through, um, that's, that's really bad PR. And that's the part I'm opposed to. I just wish the law was something, you know, statewide instead of just San Francisco. Like in Idaho, where they've had a statewide law since the 80s. And the, that, there's, a, there's a, you know, a safety component that comes up in this argument, too. Like, yep. oh, if you're going to let cyclists roll through stop signs, they're going to get maimed. There's going to be accidents all over the place. That's what this police captain in San Francisco brought up. There'd be chaos and this collisions. Arrests well, he was collisions. the one who also wanted you know, the, the high enforcement and it was, it was, you know, his direct action that brought about the response, uh, of, of the stop in. So, and, and, and an interesting note about him too. He rides bikes. Captain Sanford does. He was caught by somebody with a cell phone camera, video camera, rolling a stop sign in like the mission di- or in the golden gate park somewhere. But back to the Idaho stop sign law and the safety issue, it has been studied, you know, whether or not but these stop sign yield laws would create more injury or death or what have you, uh, UC Berkeley uh, public health researcher looked at the law 
and he found that there was actually a 14.5% drop in bicycle injury collisions in the state of Idaho the year after that law um, took effect. Uh, he also looked at um, accident rates comparing Boise to Sacramento. Those are two cities about the same size. And he found that Boise had uh, 30% fewer collisions in which bicyclists were injured. So a pretty fair case that the bike yield law is at least not going to cause more problems on the collision side. Perception-wise, we kind of got two components working here. We've got mm -hmm. safety and, and perception and, and how the two balance each other out. Well, I've had friends note that, you know, uh, the, the majority of accidents that, that they've ever been involved in, you know, while on a bike have happened in intersections. So their outlook is, I want to stay away from intersections. I want to get through an intersection as quickly as possible because the more time I'm in an intersection, even if I'm just sitting there stopped at a light, increases the likelihood that I'm going to get hit. And, you know, that's, I, I bring this up through, uh, you know, the words of others because it, it was not a perception I had. This is not my own thinking. It's something that I've had, uh, I've had raised to me by multiple different people. And I think it's, uh, it's a, a point of consideration, you know, worth discussing. Uh, here at the Paceline, we are, I think, genuine gearheads. I think the three of us all love the stuff, don't you? I mean, oh, I, I just, yeah. I mean, that's like a, <laughs> easily a third of this activity for me. The enjoyment I get out of it is is the gear. Just figuring out. Even, I wrote an article for Patrick this week on a chain, and I actually liked it. I mean, I like writing about a, a chain. Who, who gets into that, right? Well, it, it may be time to admit you have a problem. Had. I'm sorry. What was that, Fatty? I was going to say, it may be time for you to admit that you have a problem. I do. <laughs> and there's a 12-step program that I'm going to enter right after the podcast. <laughs> but we have a segment here called The Garage, and we open the garage, and we want to just see what, what kind of gear, what kind of stuff we have inside. And our jumping-off point for, for The Garage is an article that Patrick wrote on redkiteprayer.com called The Great Wheel Debate. And the... That's just not a play on words. I don't think he's trying to draw attention here to, to something that's not happening. This is really happening. I mean, we've got some serious tire and wheel choice, wheel size choices to make as we make purchases for bicycles. Patrick, break this down for us. What, how many choices do I have now when it comes to tires and wheels and bicycles? Um, well, some people would say too many. Uh, I, I don't share that view. Uh, I look at all of these options as being, you know, an important part in terms of maximizing, uh, our experience when we're out on the bike. So, I mean, you know, you still have 26 inch wheels for mountain bikes, but you know, that's, that's really not part of the performance scene anymore. Even the downhill guys have gone to 27 and a half. Uh, you've got, you know, 27 and a half for, uh, some cross-country riders, you know, an awful lot of trail riders, you know, most all the enduro riders. You got 29 for cross-country and trail. 
Uh, and now you've got the plus size, you know, the three inch tires. You've got fat tires for snow and sand and, you know, super bad mud. You know, on the roadside, we have a proliferation of new tire sizes. Uh, you know, everybody's still basically on 700C. But, you know, with the advent of multi-strata riding, you know, guys aren't just on 23-millimeter clinchers anymore. You know, you're seeing a lot of 27s and 28s. You're seeing some 30s and 32s and, you know, even some 40s out there. Um, somebody's making a 45. So there are a whole lot of choices. And my perspective is, you know, instead of trying to wrestle this debate to the ground and come up with a winner, uh, let's recognize, you know, that classic adage, horses for courses. If I was still living uh, in Memphis and dealing with all that river bottom mud, uh, I'd be rolling 27.5 plus. Absolutely. Everywhere. All the time. Um, you know, and I'd, I'd probably be moving to, uh, you know, a slightly bigger tire on the road, uh, given some of the roads way out in the county. Um, you know, I, but because of the nature of those trails, I wouldn't be on 29 inch wheels because the, the, uh, the trails are so twisty and you, you need a bike that's really maneuverable. Um, you know, around here, uh, I'm riding, uh, 27.5 plus because it's, uh, given me an ability to, uh, ride through, you know, an awful lot of rock, uh, that would otherwise be bouncing me around a lot more. So I, I see this proliferation of new sizes as being, uh, really beneficial to riders. I see the proliferation too. What I don't see is the education. Are the manufacturers and the marketers doing enough to say, hey, if you live in this area or if these are your riding conditions, this is the tire we strongly suggest you use. It seems to me they're just kind of going, here they all are, and it's cafeteria style. <laughs> the buffet? Yeah. You know, it may be that part of the problem is that to a, to a great degree, um, marketing and advertising is a lot less about education today and a lot more about just getting people's attention, just trying to capture mind share. Uh, and they're leaving a big piece of the education uh, to the media uh, and, you know, letting us deal with that. You know, is that to their best interest? Maybe not. But, you know, that's certainly what I'm seeing out there. Mm -hmm. Fatty, a uh, wheel size of choice and why? My wheel size is 29 inches for all my mountain bikes. And that's a lot of mountain bikes. And that's where the practicality is for me. There are three active riders in my household. There are, I believe, and you know, I'm putting you know stress on the word believe because I don't know for sure, but I would guess between nine and eleven mountain bikes in my garage. All of them have twenty-nine inch wheels, which means that any of the spare tubes I pull out are going to work for any of my bikes or any of my wife's bikes or any of my stepdaughter's bikes. Any, if I need to put a new tire on, I don't have to sift through and figure out whether this is a 27 and a half inch tire or a 29 inch tire. If a wheel breaks, but I want to ride that bike, I can move any front wheel to any bike because I'm also using the same kind of disc brakes on all the bikes. I'm using the same kind of saddle on all of the bikes. You know, basically when you have 
when you have a lot of people writing in a family in a household it compounds the issue of what about it, axel are, are you all quick release or through axel we haven't completely made that change and the fact is there's so many variations <laughs> of the through axel that it becomes really confusing so we're in a transitional place with that and it is sure. confusing and problematic right now but at least you know th- i have a fair chance of making you know this work with that right now it's kind of the same issue as pedals at our household you know i all road bikes are using speed plays all mountain bikes are using time attacks and it's not that those are necessarily the best it's what we've settled on and they've been around for 10 years and so you know we can move pedals around we can move shoes around it's um you know it makes it so that basically it's possible for us to mix and match and still get out on our bikes on a given day. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. For me, I have uh, I'm a 29er guy too, but that's because of riding style more than anything else. I mean, I'm an XC endurance type and tall, so I like I like the roll. This is on mountain bikes, obviously. I'm talking about. I mm-hmm. love the roll um, that I get out of the 29er, and the events I favor on a mountain bike tend to be the longer ones, like a Leadville Trail 100 or a 50-miler somewhere. Sure. And I'm not, I'm not Mr. Attack the Rock Garden. That's not me. If I were, yeah, I'd probably be looking at 27.5 plus or something like that. Just not the style of riding I do. So I try to match tire size, tire wheel size, and tires with, with style of riding. Now, do I have compatibility issues even though I'm 29er, uh, favorite of 29? Yes. I mean, I'm running a one-by on one bike and two-by on the other, so there's, there are hub issues there that always cause problems. Um, I did get a chance to ride the Cannondale Slate, not, not a long ride, but a decent a couple hours on it at Interbike, and here's an interesting take on this whole world we're talking about. It is sort of a road-style bike with a suspension front fork, 30 mil of travel, yet 650B wheel size 42c width so mm. kind of a <laughs> why why that reaction fatty oh it's just it, it's it sounds a lot like what we have going on at our household too everything looks like it ought to work together right <laughs> i mean if you look at the bikes in general it's like okay so um you know it i've got you know I, i've got all these 29 inch wheels and i've got all of these bikes none of which look like big hit bikes or anything like that but you know i you know of course none of the wheels that are on the cannondale scalpels are going to work with my are going to work with the stump jumpers mm-hmm. right they mm-hmm. just don't period and n- nothing on a quick release is going to work with a through axle and some of the through axle stuff doesn't work with the through axle other through axle stuff and you know, so my my whole carefully crafted plan of make of maximizing interactivity and swappability has fallen apart as feature creep has fooled me <laughs> into uh, into a place where you know even though it looks like things ought to work together, they aren't they aren't working together all that great. Patrick, is the wheel debate telling us just to kind of? Is one of the messages here this to not worry so much about compatibility and just to go with a setup? I think so. You know, I, I mean, you know, this whole idea of having 
you know, one bike that does a bunch of different things, I think is kind of silly. Um, in my piece, I likened it to when, you know, uh, ski companies were making the combination Nordic skis, skis that were meant to do classic, you know, diagonal Nordic track style uh, uh, cross-country skiing, plus do skating as well. And the requirements of those two different kinds of Nordic skiing couldn't be more diverse. And so if you made one ski that was meant to do both, it did neither one of them acceptably. Um, and so it was something we always uh, laughed about. Um, and, you know, the same way, it's like, you know, uh, uh, I mean, yeah, you can have a multi-strata bike that, you know, rides pretty well on the road, but it's not going to be the quickest bike on the road. Um, and it's not really going to handle single track the way a mountain bike does. But, you know, uh, riding gravel is a, a fun thing to do. And so just have a bike set up to do that. Um, and then, you know, yeah, have a proper mountain bike. Um, you know, whether you're a cross country rider or a trail rider, you know, those requirements are significantly different, even though they're both still mountain biking. And so I, I wouldn't really think in terms of like, um, you know, uh, having a lot of interchangeability. It's just not something I'm worrying about personally. Fatty, when you go to an event like Leadville, mm-hmm. do you bring with you, do you have enough spares to go around? Is that how you gear up for an event like that? Or do you go with one set of wheels and tires and cross the fingers and go for it? Or do you have enough in your garage to to, to run your own pit? Uh, you know, I can run my own pit to a degree, but it, it's a huge problem, you know, because it's not just me going to Leadville. It's me and my wife going to Leadville. Last year, um, it, we were both on Cannondales, which means we were both on lefties forks. Mm. And so there was some, you know, having one extra wheel that would work up front was enough, you know, as long as both of us didn't have, you know, a collapsing front wheel. But, you know, say this year I go and she rides a scalpel and I ride my felt with an RS1. (laughs) It doesn't matter that we are both riding the same size of wheel. The hubs are vastly different. And then, you know, my stepdaughter is going to be riding Leadville as well. And she might have... Uh, you know, is you know, suppose she's on a stump jumper with quick release. Um, you know, she has a sit up front. Everything is different, and then and that doesn't even begin to talk about what's in the back. So, you know, having having enough spares to cover everything, you you can't. It's it's almost impossible unless you have infinitely deep pockets. Um, and a trailer, right? <laughs> what I what you can do is at least take care of the stuff that is easily changed. You know, I. I will be able to say that any of my tires will swap out to any of them, that all the tubes will be the right size for any of the bikes so that things will not, you know, that at least some, the things that can easily be swapped around will be easily swapped around. We all ride the same saddle. We all ride the same pedals. We try to keep it so that the things that can be swapped aren't particular to one person. And we can have another conversation of how I convinced my wife to ride the same saddle. I do later. Neat trick. Yeah. Patrick, you are, are the three of us. I think the only one that's really significantly ridden 27 and a half plus. Since that's the new kid on the blog, mm-hmm. tell us what, 
Where, where does that slot in? What's the type of rider that should be considering that tire size? Have you, have you ever seen a cat claw its way up a set of curtains? <laughs> um, I mean, the, it's, it's, I, you know, when I first heard about it, I was not immediately on board conceptually. I was like, okay, a, a bigger tire, fine. Um, you know, it, and initially where I was riding, it didn't seem like that big a deal because riding a 29er was getting uh, great traction. And this was this was Deer Valley uh, in Utah. Um, I was there for a product launch. And I was like, okay, yeah, fine, whatever. But then once I started riding the trails uh, in Annadale, uh, where I am, it, it, that's when, you know, because they were, these were trails that I knew and there were places where traction is sometimes a problem that's when the strengths of that platform really started to become apparent for me um the 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 circumstances in which i shouldn't or would not otherwise have had sufficient traction and this thing's just allowed me to ride through have been really kind of staggering um i've changed my riding style um and that's something that I didn't see coming. And it's really been a matter of placing my faith in the traction of the tires uh, because you're, you've got such a big footprint so that, you know, you can roll into stuff where you wouldn't dare think about doing that on, say, a skinny 29-inch tire. And you can just roll through this stuff and have plenty of traction to ride your way through. My last ride... Uh, there were two different circumstances where I kind of just pushed the bike a little too far and caused the front wheel to break free, and it caught before I went down. Hmm. Uh, and that was one of those things was like, oh, I should be covered in dirt right now. Uh, so it's it's been remarkable, and I think I'm still in the learning curve in terms of the capabilities of what 27.5 plus uh, can offer. And I haven't even tried 29 plus. Well, I'll... Will all these options survive, or is somebody going to get shuffled out here? There's always a casualty. Something's always going to go away. I just don't know what. Any, but, yeah, any prediction? Uh, you know, I mean, this may be the absolute final nail on the coffin for anybody doing anything performance-wise on 26. Hmm. Um, we've just got so many other really superior options to talk about 26 in a performance capacity. It'll always live on in terms of beach cruisers and, you know, the entry-level uh, $300 bike. It'll always be there. Um, you know, the tooling is so cheap at this point. It's all paid for. But in the performance sector, you know, 26 is done. On the pace line now, we uh, go to our surprise segment. Uh, I guess this would be a bit of a surprise. Well, first of all, it's a surprise, I suppose, that anybody would want to or feel a need to uh, look into this issue. <laughs> you mean study it? Study it, yeah. I mean, I wonder what they, they were thinking. Here, here's what happened. Uh, some 
Some researchers in Germany and Australia conducted an experiment to determine marijuana's effects on a person's ability to ride a bicycle. They took uh, 14 participants, and they had them ride a bike through an obstacle course. First while sober, and then after smoking one, two, and three joints. I don't know if they shared it or what have you, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's in the, uh, the summary somewhere. Uh, they compared their performance, and then the final results were published. Um, the writers were all self-reported marijuana users, and the participants were asked to inhale the joints, hold for four seconds. I'm sorry, let me read this correct here. They were asked to inhale the joints, hold the breath or hold the smoke in for 10 seconds, exhale for 15. Oh, I see what they're trying to do maybe is standardize what the dosage is. Yeah, exactly. So then they were uh, instructed to bike through an obstacle course, and for each mistake they made, veering off track, knocking over barrels, running red lights, stalling at green lights, they received a demerit point off their final score. Now here's what the researchers concluded uh, in the end. They said only a few driving faults were observed, even under the influence of very high concentrations of THC. On the average, there's no increase in the number of demerits after the cannabis consumption. So as far as biking while high is concerned, the researchers uh, concluded that any coordinated disturbances could not be uh, detected for frequent users. And then, may, I mean, that probably goes a long way explaining how these guys were able to to handle this test. Well, but did you look at what the course was that they were riding? I did. Um, did it occur to you that that isn't the sort of thing that people who are high go out and do? Well, it's a controlled environment. It's a research environment, so you don't want to put them in actual traffic, do you? No, no, but I mean, <laughs> like, you know, take them to a bike park, you know? I mean, that's a controlled environment, but that's something that somebody stoned might actually want to ride. Or, or we, can, we can actually go further than that and say there are, there are some very stoned people who think that that is absolutely the thing to do, is to go to a bike park. Um, that obstacle course is like, you know, stoner kryptonite. It's not, I don't even want to ride that thing when I'm straight. Mm -hmm. So what do, you, what do you do? What's your reaction if you are aware somebody has been smoking marijuana around you and you're in a group ride or riding next to them? Do you have, do you care? Does it bother you? Do you ride away? Do you stick close? Dude, uh, I'm 49 years old. This is not my demographic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just thinking that the, it, the, you left off the most important conclusion, which was further research required, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the funny thing is I live in Sonoma County um, if I'm on a group ride, somebody's stoned. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, and I mean, I, it didn't surprise me on mountain bike rides, but when I saw it on road rides, I, I will admit, I was like, oh, huh, didn't see that coming. I, I have a couple of um, uh, <laughs> pot and racing stories. First, I was um, at a state road race, state championship, and... You know, we uh, were not doing the right thing and using the, the portos. We were off in some bushes somewhere. And I happened to walk around some coverage and happened upon one of my competitors with his pipe out getting ready for the state championships in the best way he thought possible. And I suppose he was trying to just calm his nerves or unless he was riding in severe pain, but I, I guess. Secondly, um, 
I didn't know this until this past year that if you take a drug or if you're submitted, you're submitted to a drug test by USAC, they look for THC. THC. Yeah. And someone was caught in SoCal with THC in their system and lost a, a podium or something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's a certain silliness to that because I mean, THC as performance enhancing. I mean. Yes, performance enhancing for a lot of riders from a standpoint of it allows them to kind of focus and and get into whatever headspace they need, you know, sure. But this is not something that delivers performance benefits in the way that uh, EPO or anabolic steroids or amphetamines do. It's It doesn't provide benefits in quite that way. It, it's certainly not a stimulant. Um, and so the fact that WADA is concerned with it really is sort of hilarious to me. You know, I remember when they first really started testing for it, um, you know, in downhill and just everybody was getting popped. It's like, <laughs> really, this surprises you? You know, what, are you new here? Um, so, you know, mountain biking and pot goes back as far as mountain biking. Um, you know, so it's just none of this is surprising to me. Um, I just have yet to personally make the connection of uh, where THC enhances the mountain biking experience. I have, shall we say, intersected the two on, a, on multiple occasions, um, and it was more because of the social aspect going on. But it, it's not like I went, oh, 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 dude, this is how we're supposed to mountain bike. But I've got plenty so of riding while high. Well, if yeah, they're not going to be bike, in my immediate plans, have, no bong in the um, bottle cage. But uh, adjusted their TV. Look, you can get through an obstacle course. So if you're token, I guess you're going to be safe. Okay, guys, unfortunately, the pace line uh, coming to a stop here. Oh. Uh, a little working group has had enough for today, huh? That's I'm enough shredded. time. At, enough podcasting at lactate threshold. Uh, but again, want to want to thank uh, the Fat Cyclist uh, for being here. Fatcyclist.com. And FattyCast.com. Yeah, and This fattycast. is not my com. only podcast. Oh, no. Mm. Uh, any, uh, any final thoughts for you, Fatty? Uh, I just wanted to apologize once again to my fellow Utahns for not having a fat bike. Please, I know. A, a man like you with a name like that. Please. I know. There's a bike shop in town. You, you would think destroy. you would think that with all the fat bikes around, someone would have sent a fat bike to the fat cyclist. I, right. Exactly. Come on. Are I'm you PR guys not. even awake? <laughs> and of course, we wouldn't be here without Red Kite Prayer and Patrick Brady. Patrick, uh, thanks for being here. Oh, yeah. Great to be here. Uh, I'm going to get dressed and slather my entire body in embro now for another wet ride cool and we'll uh be checking you out at uh, redkiteprayer.com uh you can also find me there on occasion um and of course on this fine podcast the pace line thanks for being here folks good night everybody (laughs) 